are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. You take your Bibles and open them, please, to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning of verse 25. This is not an original title. This is not an original Bible story. You've heard this many, many times. Um, I guess, well, I don't have any original Bible stories, but I haven't written any lately. But uh, <clears throat> what I want you to see tonight is maybe a different flavor uh, from the title of the message than perhaps you've heard before. And uh, to that end, let's look at 1 Samuel 17, beginning at verse number 25. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come. It shall be that the man that killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. You say, man, that's wonderful. I don't know. It all depends on what the daughter looked like. Uh, that could have been a drawback if she looked like some ladies I've seen. But nonetheless... Uh, it, they presented it here as if it were a positive thing, so she probably was okay. Verse number 26 says, And David spake to the men uh, that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And they had told him again that you're going to get... Uh, the king's daughter, and you're going to get a bunch of other stuff uh, from the king if you uh, take out this man that's a reproach against God's men right now. The people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, his eldest brother. Now, I happen to be the oldest brother of five boys in my home, and so not all older brothers are bad, but many of them are. And Eliab happened to be one of those pain-in-the-neck kind of older brothers. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? And this phrase, of course, that I'm sure you've heard across this pulpit at one time or another is still a resounding question that I want to bring to your attention again this evening. Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner, and the people answered him again after the former manner. Now, I'd like to suggest to you tonight that I like what David did. Here he was, just a young man, Bible scholars tell us, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 years old. And teenagers, you can serve God. Amen. You don't have to wait until you get a Bible college diploma or until you've gone off and taken hermeneutics and homiletics and apologetics and all the other edicts that ruin you in college. Uh, you can go serve God now. But this young man looked out there and saw this giant that came up against accomplishing God's will and he looked around and saw his oldest brother hiding in the ditch, his face down in the dirt and the mud and the dust of the ground. And uh, he looked around and saw the mighty men of valor, so to speak, hiding from the giant. And he says, wait a minute, if you won't do it, I will. 
And thus we have the story of David going out and killing the giant. Now, I'll not belabor that story tonight for the smallest child in here could probably come up here and tell it with greater drama than I can. But what I want to bring your attention is this. When he decided to do something, here came those that were there to discourage anybody with a new idea. They're there, amen? You just have a new idea and wait. Eliab will hear about it. He'll crawl out of the ditch, come talk you out of it, go back and get a patent on it himself. You're always out there to do that. And David looked Eliab, his oldest brother, in the eye and he says, Look here, I'm not here because of the naughtiness of my heart. And I'm not here just because I want somebody to pat me on the back. Eliab, I've got a question for you. Is there not a cause? And then notice what David did. He turned his back on his oldest brother. And the Word of God says that he turned from him, Eliab, towards another that thought like he did. (laughs) I like that. Man, if you've got an idea and you believe in that idea and some old uh, sourpuss crawls out of the ground and says, that's a bad idea, turn your back on him, find somebody that believes like you and go out and succeed. Amen? That's what David did. This week, beginning Wednesday and now through Sunday, you will have been challenged about the idea of missions. Some of you are sitting in these pews right now and Brother Trevor uh, inspired you about let's buy that church building and have another North Valley Baptist Church, maybe not a name but in concept, established somewhere else around this globe somewhere. Then you said, yes, preacher, I'll be one of those. You can count me in to give that 200 and some dollars. I want to do my part. But before you even get away from the ditch, Eliab's going to get up and say, no, you can't do that. You've got a visa card payment. And your wife will say, but what about that mink stole that I want? Huh. No, you're going to get mink stole is to stole it, I'll tell you right now. But what about, the, what about the new linoleum for the kitchen floor? And how about the new mirror that we want over the sink in the bathroom? The other one is broken from every time you go and look at it. And uh, we want, we, we've got all these needs. And before you know it, before you know it, you're going to have all these Eliabs coming and trying to keep you from doing the job of starting independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist churches. You know what you need to do? You need to say, well, I'll bless God, I'm going to turn my back on Eliab. I'll find somebody else. If you can't find anybody else in this church who believes in missions, come to the preacher. He'll stand with you. Amen. Come to me. I'll stand with you. I'm a missionary now. <laughs> At least for six months, anyhow. All of us are missionaries. You know the uh, true definition of that. But in the truest sense, when folks help you in the ministry, you know what I'm talking about. What I want to talk to you about tonight is this subject of the local New Testament church, especially as we regard it here in America, as I'm here to represent the whole missions part of your missions program this week. I used to ask preachers to come preach for me a banquet or missions conference that we held annually, or uh, even the ladies' seminar that we had every year and had hundreds of ladies come from around New England to that, and you'd pray over it and you'd just say, Lord, please help them to ring the bell when they come. And some of them came, and man, they rang all the bells. They even rang bell. They brought their own along with them and rang yours and theirs both. And you just thrilled and said, thank God. And other times they'd come, and man, they'd break your bell. (laughs) 
They wouldn't ring it. They threw, I mean, it was a real dud. And I, I begged God ever since Brother Treberg said, would you come and represent the whole missions part, especially about starting new uh, fundamental Bible-believing Baptist churches here, uh, especially in this area of California. And I said, Lord, please help me to do a, do, do a job, not so I can say, man, look how great I preach, but I want you folks, when you walk out of these doors tonight, to be as committed to starting the church as you heard about a moment ago as this man is right here. And that's not always the case. Pastor after pastor after pastor in this country of ours are seeking to find ways to motivate the people to do the work of God. We might be motivated, and man, we know what we want, and we're ready to sacrifice, and we're ready to mortgage the home, and we're ready to sell the car, but for some reason, we're not able to get the folks to come along with us. Well, that's my self-appointed job, I think, tonight. I want you to walk out of the room tonight saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is a cause. Our local churches are under an unusual degree of disfavor today. The cry of separation of church and state are heard daily on the television, the radio, and the printed media. The pair of church groups feed off of our converts while ridiculing our programs, our preaching, and our standards. The electronic religious leaders get into our homes and, by the way, I'm not against all those. And if, if I had the ability and I had the talent and I had the money, I wouldn't mind getting on channel whatever myself. That'd be all right. But I, I'm a little upset of over these guys that are not affiliated with a local church. The Word of God talks about God established the local church. And the local churches have the authority over our colleges, over our day schools, over our missionary programs, over, uh, over I believe, even the radio and the television and our publications. I'm a local church man. Your preacher knew that, and that's why uh, he wanted me to come out here and be involved in the local church. We even have our Christian day school movement that begrudges the fact that the church has a leadership position over the Christian day schools. We're under attack. And if we're to carry out the Great Commission, which the Word of God spells out as reaching, teaching, and baptizing, those three elements, if we're to have the Great Commission, we must have the local church. We could go out and go soul winning with all these parachurch groups and win folks to Christ. But let me ask you a question. Where will they be trained? Somebody can listen to somebody on television or radio and trust Christ as Savior. I believe that. But where will they be trained if we don't have independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Baptist churches planted all over this great globe of ours? This country is gone. We've got to have the local church. I'm against the Pat Boone baptizing you in the backyard and the swimming pool kind of mentality that's going around this country. What about getting them baptized in the local church by the local pastor, not the local nightclub entertainer gone religious? If I stepped on some toes, I apologize that I didn't step harder. <laughs> Got no tolerance for that. Our brother said a moment ago that the greatest problem they face in Korea is not the Buddhists, but the Charismatics. I say that statement holds true here in America as well. They've taken the idea of the local church and made it minuscule. 
And it wanes in light of the large evangelistic ministries and wanes in light of the television programs and wanes in the shadow of the radio programs. And I'm just here to wave the flag for the local fundamental Bible-believing church. One thing I find, though, if we're going to do that, number one, you've got to be committed to the local church. I don't mean you've got a padded cell somewhere and the preacher comes by and throws you a loaf of bread and some milk every once in a while. I mean you've got to have a dedication in your heart for the local church. Don't be pulled aside by all these parachurch things. Listen to me. I want you to understand the attack the local church is under today. Right this very moment, this very instant, while I'm state of California, the following factions of our local church is now in danger of falling times of the labor commissioner of this state. Let me give them to you. Secretaries, bus drivers, maintenance men or uh, gardeners outside, maintenance men, and uh, mechanics. You know why? They say these folks are different than your Sunday school teachers. These folks are different than your uh, Christian day school teachers and pastoral staff members. These folks represent a workforce that we believe ought to have access even to the Christian schools and the local churches. You know what that means? If this thing goes through, and if the governor of this state signs this thing and says, it'll be all right, you want to tell you what happened? They could come into our churches, mine and this one here. They can say, we believe that you ought to have a certain amount of minorities involved. And I'm all for that. And if I want to hire a minority, let the minority be saved, born again, separated, washed in the blood, love God, soul winning, separated, I'll hire them. But they want to insert somebody in here that believes in alternate lifestyles as homosexuality and lesbianism. And they believe it's all right to smoke and to drink and to curse and to go to movies. And if this thing is passed, we are under the very likelihood of having to go to battle to keep from hiring that kind of crowd, having that kind of crowd forced into a very, very important part of our ministry. I think one of the, I think one of the greatest positions in the church, as far as maybe being able to do damage to the ministry, is the secretarial position. And they want to thrust somebody unsaved in there? God help us. What are we going to do? You must be committed to the local church. And be ready to fight for it. Thank God for Brother Lester Roloff that was committed to the local church and to fight for it. Thank God for this church right here that even in recent past has had to suffer the persecution of uh, the legislators and and, uh, those that would have come in and forced their rules and regulations upon you. But you stood firm and stood strong. You must if you're going to accomplish your goal of establishing local churches. I recall back in January 6th, January, January 8th, 1976. I had a real battle with this thing. We had a church business meeting. They're not my favorite things to attend. You say, well, I like them. Well, I'm glad you do. Let me know when you're having one. I'll come and sit in the back and watch. I hate being up here behind them most of the time. 
You came to church that night and you sort of had to have your machete in your hand to cut your way through the atmosphere. I mean, it was there. It was like Notre Dame going against Army or Navy. I mean, man, it was a tremendous spirit. And it wasn't the Holy One. As a matter of fact, I'd caught wind of some things that were going to go on that night. And I told my wife, I said, honey, you're staying home tonight. She says, well, I want to go to church. I said, we ain't having church tonight. We're having a business meeting. <laughs> she said, preacher, you sound kind of cynical. Well, thank God God's delivered me from that since then. But let me tell you about it. I walked into the meeting that night and, man, it broke loose. We had screaming, foot stomping, fist pounding, hollering. And they voted out all the standards for the Sunday school teachers. I was assistant pastor. I wrote on a little piece of paper and gave it up to the pastor. I said, uh, Brother Carroll, I said, uh, if this is the kind of church that we've given ourselves for to throw it all standard, I said, I resign right now. Read my resignation. I resigned. Pastor Carroll resigned. The business meeting got out of control. The chairman of the deacons got up and tried to get the meeting back in order. His brother-in-law came up and grabbed him by the tie, jerked him off the platform. It was godly. <clears throat> we had 75 of our teenagers in the business meeting that night that were not allowed to vote and uh, by church constitution. And when this happened, they, they couldn't believe what was going on. These were young people who loved God, went soul winning and uh, helped build the church and ran bus routes. They were, well, they were there on a Wednesday night as they normally were. Showed what kind of teenagers they were. They loved the Lord. What's happening, uh, the, the, the president of the youth group got up and he just sort of motioned for the teenagers. They went downstairs to have a prayer meeting to beg God to do something. The meeting concluded and the opposition went out the back door and one of the young men put his hands in the air like this and clenched his fist and said, We did it! We did it! We did it! Got in his car and went home. Lights were all but extinguished except for a couple as people were still kind of milling around the building. I started looking for the preacher. I loved him with all my heart, still do. One of the greatest friends I've got on the face of this world. And I was privileged to work for him for two and a half years. Started looking for the preacher. <clears throat> Couldn't find him. Asked one of the men who was a close friend of both of ours. I said, where's Brother Carroll? He said, I haven't seen him. I don't know where he is. Everybody left the building. I was there by myself, and I was walking around trying to find the preacher. I knew he wasn't home. I checked with his wife. She hadn't seen him. <clears throat> and I heard something coming from one of the Sunday school rooms. We'd given our life to that place. In two years, we saw the thing grow from just a handful, not hardly a hundred there, to a big days of uh, over six, seven hundred in attendance. God was blessing and I heard something coming from a Sunday school room. It was a low sound as if... Well, it's the kind of noise you used to hear out on the football field and someone really got clobbered. And opened up the door and there was Brother Carroll stretched out on his face with his hands extended over his head just lying completely flat on the floor. Not crying any longer. He had cried all he could. Now all he was doing was just kind of groaning. And I said, Dennis... He didn't say anything to me. I said, Dennis! He didn't say anything to me. 
And I reached down. He's a little, kind of a smaller fella. Well, everybody next to me is kind of smaller, I guess. But he was kind of smaller by almost anybody's definition. And I picked him up in my arms and I carried him to his house and put him in bed. And I got in my car and I said, Lord, if this is church, you can have it. I quit. So they took one of the best men I've ever met in my life and they've ruined him. They've destroyed him. I quit. And I went home and I quit. I sit in my living room reading the Bible. Ready to call my father on the phone and say, Dad, can you get me a job at General Motors? I want to come start a career there. <laughs> Thank God I didn't do that. Went out of business just about. But telephone rang. It's a sweet, precious, elderly lady in our church. And she said, Son, she always called us son, both of us, Brother Carol and myself. She was about 80 years old. She said, Son. I said, Yes, ma'am. She said, you're down in the dumps today, the Lord told me. <laughs> I said, really? She said, yes, he did. She said, now don't you do nothing foolish. And I said, like what? She said, like quitting. <laughs> she said, you got to learn something. And I said, what? She said, nobody is against you. They're against Jesus. And if you quit, you're quitting on Him. Don't quit. I said, I'm sorry. She said, it's all right. You didn't quit, did you? And I got to tell you something, the honest truth. Probably along about January 10th, 1976 I made a commitment to my Lord I said Jesus I'm yours I don't care what happens as they say down south come hell or high water I'm yours I'm just not going to quit I'm not going to get mad at the deacons and say if that's how they want to be they can have the whole mess I'll go somewhere else I'll quit I'll get another kind of job I'll go take flying lessons and become a pilot. I'll go dig ditches. Uh, no, sir. I just said, Lord, this is what I'm going to do. I'll tell you right now, I'm committed to the local church of Christ. By the way, there's some of you sitting in this room, the first little old thing that happens, you want to run. You want to leave at the, the church behind. And I'm not talking about just changing from this church to another one, but many folks just want to quit completely, turn their back upon God, and no longer be a part of the local body of Christ. Let me tell you something. You can quit this church or any church and go out and win souls and have Bible studies in your home and send money to missionaries. But let me tell you something. If you are not a member and a contributor and a supporter of the local church, the body of Christ, you are not part of the Great Commission. Commitment to the local church. 
I'm so sick of folks running helter-skelter, joining everything uh, that comes along, and this thing, and that thing, and a new organization, and old organizations, and, uh, and all these groups that want to poke fun at the old-fashioned, fundamental, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church in town. But you just give me a church like this one any old day of the week. That's what I want. But not only do I want you to know there's a cause... And if you're going to accomplish that cause, you've got to have a commitment. And I don't like using that word commitment. I mean, dedication. Just go ahead and get a saw log in your backbone instead of a noodle and just stand firm and say, man, I'm here. Nothing can drive me out of here. Not the devil. Nothing can. And then I'll recommend this to you as well. Why do we need local churches? And how are we going to have the cause that I spoke of a moment ago accomplished? This way. Worldly conditions. We've got everybody in the world trying to figure out how to solve the world's problems. Poor old President Reagan thinks he can do it with this summit with Gorbachev and this summit with uh, somebody else and this caucus and this kind of thing and uh, give more cheese to the elderly. And uh, I mean, n- listen, that's not going to do any good. You say, here's how we're going to do it. We can have all godly senators in our state. I'm all for that, but that's not going to do it. God did not say, I died and gave my life to have Christians in the Senate. He said, I gave my life and upon this rock, Jesus, I'll build my church. He did not say, we're going to have a godly Senate and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He said, this is my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What we've done in recent days, and if what I say now ruffles you, please don't get mad. Brother Treber's not saying this, I am saying this. And I don't even know sometimes if everything I say is agreed by everybody. But just listen, let me, let me just tell you something. I'm convinced with all my heart and all my mind and all my body and all my soul, the answer for this world is not a Christian president and a Christian Congress and a Christian Senate and a Christian state legislator. The hope of this world is good, old-fashioned, godly-preaching local churches. Then you give us 200 local churches, and that's better than 200 Christian senators any day. Attack on our children. Dr. Keller, K-E-L, I believe it's double L-E-R, has written a textbook for the state of California that's now in use this moment while I'm standing behind this pulpit. For um, It's graded for smaller children all the way through, but the version that I saw was probably for about a 7th, 8th, ninth grade level. And in this book that's been adopted by the state school board, recommended by those in education, and you don't believe this, and I'll just challenge you, the title of the book is Learning About Sex by Dr. Keller. You won't believe this. I don't believe it, but I saw it. In this book, he said that it's okay. Now, you don't, you don't think we need local churches preaching when I'm preaching tonight. Man, listen to this. He said it's okay for adults to have Intimate relationships, and I'll use that terminology since children are here. Intimate relationships with five and six-year-old children. He said some may say this is child abuse. He said it's only construed as child abuse if the parents make a big deal about it. 
He said the only way the child will believe there's something unusual is if we let them think it's unusual. In this same book, he encouraged lesbianism and homosexuality. In this same book, he encouraged all kinds of perverted ways for men and women outside of marriage to be intimate one with another, outside of the normality that the Word of God talks about. The same gentleman made the statement that a young child, by the time they reach five years old, is mentally ill. He didn't say many of them are. He said all children who are brought up in a traditional, nucleus kind of a family, by the time they're five years old, they are mentally ill. You say, why does he say they are mentally ill? He said, because they believe in such things as God. Because they believe in such things as national pride and patriotism. Because they believe in such things as authority and even revering presidents and those in rule and authority over us. He said, we must get these children as soon as we can and deprogram them and make them normal. You say, well, I know how we can solve that wickedness in this world. Let's get some legislators. No, sir, let's get some local churches preaching hellfire damnation. Get right, stay right with God preaching. My wife saw a documentary thing the other day. They're taking Shirley Temple movies. And they're dubbing over, their mouths still move. It looks like a foreign film with uh, another uh, English language on. Their mouths still move, but they've changed the words. And the theme to this one movie, uh, to Shirley Temple being demon-possessed, glorifying the devil, and changed all the music to rock music, and having the, the, uh, the dances she used to do, and and so forth as a little girl to those old-time tunes that you and I uh, had seen her when we were little children, changed that to hard-acid rock and are promoting that and ready to release that around the country. You say, what we need in that case then, Brother Davis, are Christian film producers. No, sir! What we need is by the foolishness of preaching to save them that will believe. And that preaching comes from the pulpits of local fundamental Bible-believing gospel churches. Needy people have in my files at home a letter from a young man by the name of Andy Meisler. He's a graduate of high school and has several years of college behind him. And if I showed you this letter, you would think that a three- or four-year-old child had written it. His handwriting was so erratic and his wording was so elementary. He said, well, how in the world could someone go through high school and college and have a letter like that? He went to a party one night and some of his friends dared him. It was a dare party. They uh, dared each other to do gross and grotesque kind of things. And one tried to outdo another. Did all kinds of hideous, heinous things at this party. I couldn't even go into uh, the details with you tonight with this mixed crowd here. But one of them dared him and he took that very night 37 hits of LSD, destroyed his mind. They got him on some kind of drug rehabilitation to return his chemistry as much as they can back to normal so that he can least function. And he came to church when I was preaching in Boundbrook, New Jersey. 
and walked the aisle and found Christ as his Savior. And tonight is walking, tonight is living for God and serving God in a local church there in New Jersey. You say, why? Because of the psychologists and the programs they have? No, sir. Because of the drugs? No, sir. Because of the uh, chemistry kind of therapy? No, sir. It's because of an old-fashioned, fundamental, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. And what this country needs are churches like this all over the nation, around the globe, to do the job. You'll be told that's not the case. You'll be told that we are part of the problem, not part of the solution. But all you have to do is run to the Word of God and find out what the Creator of the universe has to say about it, and you'll quickly learn that He's on our side. I met a young man by the name of Boyd Hammett, sitting in 1875, Wabansia Boulevard in North Chicago. It's a cold, windy, misty kind of day in Chicago just as the winter months were setting in. I was running a bus route. Guess what? For a local church. We're hauling them down to a coffee house. We're hauling them down to a rap session. We're taking them to Sunday school. Walked over to him and said, Hello, what's your name? He looked up, and I can still seem today as if the Holy Spirit has burned this image on my mind. I think about him often. Big blue eyes looked up at me, and he said, Boyd. Well, I said, my name is Brother Wally, and I run buses. I run a bus up and down these streets here, taking boys to girls in Sunday school, all the way down to Hammond, Indiana. Man, we, we're so glad it takes a long time to get there because we have such a fun time on the bus. It's how if you have to sell them uh, on the program on the bus and have a good time going back and forth and they want to move farther away so they can ride the bus longer. It's not a hindrance. It's a blessing if you do it right. And, uh, man, we, we got him all excited. He said, I want to come. Old Boyd came and rode the Sunday school bus. But let me tell you this about Boyd. I said, Boyd, I'm glad you want to come to Sunday school. Let, let me go talk to your mom and dad. He said, I ain't got no daddy. I said, Why? He said, well, Mr. Wally, looked down at him, had an old raggedy overcoat on, a pair of tennis shoes. His shoestring is about that long, and he only got through a couple of the eyes of the tennis shoe. Didn't have enough shoestring to get through the whole thing and had holes in the side of the shoes and sitting out there in that cold. And he said, my mama won't let me come in. I said, what do you mean, Boyd? He said, she's with somebody, and she told me to get out of the house and sit out here until she's ready for me to come home. I said, let's go talk to her and ask her, ask your mom and dad about coming to Sunday school. I said, I ain't got no daddy. I said, what happened? Uh, did you know your dad? And it wasn't uncommon to pick up boys and girls who didn't know one or the other of their parents. And in some cases, they didn't know either of their parents. He said, no. He said, we used to have a laundromat right down the street. And there was a laundromat right down there. He said, my mom and dad managed that laundromat. He said, one night... As we always did, we'd go down and help him lock up and we'd empty out all the change and we'd sweep out the, uh, the floors and then we'd go home and Mama would make something to eat and Daddy would uh, count all the money, make the deposit, come on home and have supper together at night. So we had such a good time. One night, we got back home and waited and waited and waited and Dad wasn't there and finally, knock came up the door. Mom went open up the door and there stood a man dressed in a dark uniform with a badge and a hat and said, Hello, ma'am, is your name Mrs. Hammett? Yes, sir. He said, I don't know how to tell you this. He said, but there's been a robbery down where you manage the laundromat and 